welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, helping aspiring investors get to grips with the world of finance and investing. Hello, I'm Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. And on this week's programme, we talk to Simon French, Chief Economist at Panmure Gordon, who describe themselves as a 21st century merchant bank. We ask Simon to explain what an economist does and for his take on what's happening with our economy right now. But before that, let's take a look at what's happening out there this week with companies and markets. As ever, markets first. Marcus, what's been happening in the markets this week? Hello all, and in the markets this week, we're going to discuss how, following a couple of strong weeks of gains, investors are now balancing the optimism felt over a growing number of effective vaccines versus the job of getting them distributed in the coming months as COVID continues to wreak havoc across various nations. So the week started fairly strongly as news emerged of another successful phase three vaccine trial, this time with Boston-based Moderna. With their unusual approach of using messenger RNA, the vaccine has managed to demonstrate a high efficacy of 95%. And although this initially pipped the Pfizer-BioNTech effort, the latter released further results this week that draws the two vaccines neck and neck. It was good news to market ears, as a pattern seems to be emerging that the colossal efforts around the world to produce effective vaccines this year seems to be paying off. But investors treaded cautiously. As now these milestones have been reached, the focus turns to the complex jobs of producing vaccines to sufficient quantities and getting them distributed quickly and fairly. Sentiment did soften midweek as it became clear that the virus is still surging around the globe. In the US, the death toll reached a grim quarter of a million people and New York Mayor Bill de Blasio announced schools were going to be closing to combat the rise. In Europe, France became the first country there to pass 2 million cases and also in Japan where new daily records have been set. It reminds us we're not out of the woods yet, with investors concerned that further extended lockdowns could start to deliver that permanent economic damage we need to avoid, the economic scarring, especially in the absence of fresh stimulus in the US and Europe. In the UK, midweek softness was added to by the stalemate position on Brexit as negotiations drag and Europe's head seems set to demand no deal plans. All in all, markets are fairly flat. The S&P 500 is up five points to 3,567. The UK FTSE 100 is down 15 points to 6,323. Europe's stock 600 is up three points to 387. And Japan's Nikkei 225 is up 231 points to 25,634. Okay, so let's now have a look at some of the major stories coming out of companies this week. Compare the market, the price comparison website has been fined almost £18 million by the Competition and Markets Authority, that's the competition watchdog, for keeping home insurance costs artificially high. It said that over the two years from December 2015, Compare the market's contracts stopped insurers advertising more cheaply elsewhere. But the firm hit back at the ruling, saying it fundamentally disagreed. 
Compare the Market is owned by BGL, a privately owned digital insurance company. And one of the UK's biggest consumer goods companies, Unilever, has set itself a scary target to increase sales of vegan food. It wants to increase its annual sales of plant-based meat and dairy products to 1 billion euros by 2027. It's aiming to capitalise as consumers turn to vegetarian foods for health or environmental reasons. In the UK, there's been huge growth in vegan food sales, with sales of meat-free products up 18% over the last year. Unilever shares have gone up 3.6% this year. Tech giant Apple is to pay £85 million to settle allegations that it slowed down older iPhones. In an action brought by 33 states in America, they claimed that Apple had done this to drive users into buying new devices. Millions of people were affected when the models of iPhone 6, 7 and SE were slowed down in 2016, which Apple says was to protect the battery life of ageing models. Under the settlement, Apple did not admit any wrongdoing or breaking any law. Their shares are up 57% this year. And finally, Royal Mail has said revenue from parcel deliveries is more than from letters for the first time, with 60% of its total revenue coming from parcels as consumers move to online shopping. However, pre-tax profit fell 90% to just £17 million as costs increased, including employing extra staff to sort the increased parcel volume by hand and £85 million in costs related to COVID-19. It's also spent £147 million on voluntary redundancies as the business continues to restructure. Okay, so that's the week in markets and companies. Let's move on now to our feature interview. And this week, Marcus spoke to Simon French from Panmure Gordon about being an economist and the new world in which we find ourselves. Today, we are going to be having a chat with an economist. Now, in case you're not sure exactly what they do, their role looks into how the economic machine takes the resources we have and grinds it through in order to produce and distribute goods and services for us all to consume. By researching and analysing lots of data, they provide insight into trends and what's driving the economy, enabling useful predictions for where it may be going in the future. So I'd like to welcome to the pod the Chief Economist at Pamuel Gordon, Simon French. Marcus, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So just um, first of all, I just want to describe who Pamuel Gordon are as a company. Yes, so we're an investment bank based uh, in, the, in the city of London, and we represent uh, small and medium-sized UK businesses, and we also broker our research to institutional clients, pension funds, uh, wealth managers, looking to put savers' money to work. Okay, um, well, let's get on to uh, some economics. We've obviously seen quite a lot of pain wrought by the crisis that's that's been induced by the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, And now we're seeing some vaccines emerging. We've just seen another one um, come out of the US. So does this mean for economies and markets that we're going to see liftoff 
around the world? Or do you think there's still plenty of difficulty still to navigate? There are a lot of challenges ahead for the global economy. Yes, there is inevitably enthusiasm, light in the, at the end of the tunnel, if you like, on the prospect of some return to normality, a reduction in social distancing and some of those businesses that have been able, unable to operate at anything like their previous levels of capacity. Uh, looking forward to the prospect when they can do so again. The challenge, though, is not just on affirming that the vaccine, the initial very positive vaccine data um, will translate through to a, a viable vaccine, but also the delivery of that to potentially 7 billion people across the, the planet. And clearly, in order to generate herd immunity, we're not going to have to go quite that high. But you can imagine the delivery challenge to get that number of vaccines out there to also move on from the behavioural scarring from this period. Now, we all of us have lived very different lives for the last eight, nine months. And the question is how persistent that will be, those changes in behaviour. And if they are, the economy is going to have to adjust to service our new patterns of behaviour and our new patterns of demand. I mean, we've seen markets bounce, um, you know, it's quite exceptionally, actually, since the need of these vaccines have emerged. I mean, do you think that is, as you describe, you know, we've got to get this vaccine out there, we've got to deliver it to people and, and get people, you know, immunity into, into populations. Do you think they're being a bit too exuberant at the moment? They're being a bit too optimistic? I wouldn't go that far. Um, I would say that the... The, uh, the global stock market, uh, as, to the extent that it's ever a single entity, but it is often described as thus, has been under a lot of pressure in the first half of the year. And while there has been a recovery in some of the, an exceptional recovery in some of the big technology stocks, your Apples, your Amazons, Google, uh, those technology stocks that have been really uh, in demand during the pandemic. Those have led the recovery. But actually, what we've seen quite interestingly in uh, the, since the news of a vaccine has come along is those companies that didn't participate in that, that recovery over the summer have started to participate. So long-suffering investors in uh, travel companies, hospitality companies, industrial companies, where they can see the promise of better volumes. That is a rational reaction to the fact that a vaccine would be transformative in terms of moving their earnings back to the kind of levels they enjoyed in 2019. So actually, it's just sort of parts of the market that are maybe a bit more economically linked. Sometimes investors refer to these as value as well. They're quite, there's quite an association with value stocks there that these have just now have got, there's more reason to be optimistic uh, in those areas of the market. Uh, completely right. If you look at the two big value sectors in the UK, energy and banks, now, those have historically been investor darlings. They paid out big dividends and a lot of uh, income-focused investors like dividends, the money that comes back to them once or twice a year. Um, and those have been really under pressure. The Bank of England and the regulator has stopped a lot of the banks paying their dividends. And for energy companies, there's been a big collapse in the demand for oil. We've all been driving less, flying less, and therefore oil prices have gone down. And therefore, the future of dividends from the likes of BP and Shell have also gone down. That value part of the market has been under a lot of pressure. And therefore, the prospects that they might see 
higher oil prices and better mm. uh, earnings trajectory for banks is one of the things that's caused that rotation back into value that you, that you reference. Okay, let's move on to one of the you know really important tools in order to bring the economy through this crisis, and that is money printing, quantitative easing, as it's known. Can you explain how this works, how we can just print money to help, and what it is that that money is being used for? So quantitative easing is, is one of those unhelpful titles that puts a lot of people off wanting to really understand what it is. <laughs> so quantitative easing is in effect the bank of it, at least in the UK, it is the Bank of England producing bank reserves, which isn't actually printing money at all. I mean, it may have been you know, 50, 100 years ago. These days, it's digital money that is created in the form of bank reserves. And with that, they buy largely government debt. So the debt uh, issued by the UK Debt Management Office, effectively used to fund the Treasury public sector spending. And you asked, what does it buy? Well, it buys that debt, but it also buys lower interest rates because so much that we have in our economy, the price that you get from your high street bank for, for a loan, the interest rate you pay on your mortgage is linked to the cost of government debt and the, the interest rates in these, these bond markets. And therefore, the Bank of England is in effect buying lower interest rates for households and businesses to try and support them through what has been a really tough time for many businesses and many households. Okay. Are there ramifications to this? Because I'm fairly sure, from my, if I remember my history lessons correctly, this is what led to hyperinflation in Germany, did it not? Well, the idea of what is known as monetary financing, which is when, in effect, your central bank will give your government money to keep spending, that has got a checkered record, either in you know, your rights reference Germany in the early part of the 20th century, other economies, Argentina, Venezuela, Zimbabwe have tried this. However, it's important to argue that quantitative easing or, or asset purchases at this point are entirely consistent with the bank trying to support the UK economy because it is more likely in the short run will get deflation the wages will fall and the prices will fall. So it needs to try and encourage us to go out and spend by providing low interest rates. The, what you describe is when inflation starts to pick up and the Bank of England were to continue to do that in, let's say, a year or two's time. It's continuing to buy assets or it is continuing to keep very low interest rates. That's when you would have what is known as monetary financing, and when those historical precedents from other countries start to become more relevant, but not at this stage. Um, is, are we going to have to pay for it? I mean, are taxes going to have to rise? Yes, eventually they are, but not now. And, and I think it's very clear that 10 years ago, there was a lot of calls from the International Monetary Fund uh, uh, and others in the economics community asking for uh, an increase in taxes or, as we saw in the UK, a reduction in spending, what was known as austerity. Ten years on, or more, just over ten years on, those voices are not calling for that. They are calling for the government to keep spending and for taxes to remain at their current levels until the economy has recovered. And so while taxes will have to go up, over the medium term, short term, it's more important that people get back into the jobs, the companies survive, that the economy's put back on a, 
on a, an even keel before the chancellor or, or finance ministers around the world start to talk about raising taxes. So a medium-term risk, but certainly not a risk anytime soon. I want to move on to a, um, uh, a, a growing effort, really, that's definitely, it seems to be accelerated by, by the crisis and, and certainly activists like Greta Thunberg. And that's the, that's the effort to contain climate change and the rise in, in temperatures. Um, do you think these efforts are going to be damaging to economies? Do you think it's going to going to cost us something in terms of GDP, gross domestic product growth? So the simple answer is no, it doesn't have to cost you GDP. But as with every public policy decision, and before being Pamela Gordon, I spent 12 years in the UK civil service, when you thinking about changing policy, think about public spending, it, there is good. There are good ways of spending money and there are bad ways of spending money. There are good ways of uh, instigating change and there are bad ways. So um, if we uh, in the UK, and this is a challenge faced by countries around the world, um, pick the right technologies that are going to, uh, you know, carry favour with consumers, are going to smooth that adjustment from, say, gas boilers to uh, air source heat pumps or from internal combustion engine cars to electric vehicles. Done well, there is absolutely no trade-off with GDP. It doesn't have to be the growth. Growth domestic product has to be lower. Indeed, you most of the analysis suggests it can be positive when we see big technological changes it doesn't matter whether it's from the canals to the railways railways to internal combustion engines when you see that you see a boost in economic growth as 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 entrepreneurs try and take advantage of that to service new patterns of demand so so no the economist profession does not suggest that addressing climate change has to mean lower growth yeah because in effect we're creating entire new industries here which will have plenty of jobs and so anything that might be lost from more traditional industries say fossil fuels will just will just move into new industry won't it correct and therefore the challenge is that both financial markets and governments um, effectively provide grease to that transition because you're right jobs will have to move businesses will have to move what is known as capital needs to move around the the economy and the more frictionless to keep the analogy going with providing grease uh, the more frictionless that can be the lesser the, the the hit what you don't want is um, unemployed people for a persistently long period of time who can't retrain, can't find jobs in the new economy, where jobs are inevitably going to be lost in the old economy. So there is another part of the the, the, the challenge, but certainly not one that is uh, insurmountable. So a well-planned transition. I mean, do you, I mean, I said uh, the crisis might have accelerated this trend. I mean, do you agree with that and, and why? Uh, yes, I do agree that uh, behavioural shifts that were already happening have been accelerated out of necessity. And I've recently written a, uh, a, a number of articles about the potential upside to productivity from what a lot of the listeners to this podcast will have been forced to do over the last seven or eight months. They've been forced to engage with new technology, new platforms. Um, they might not have been back in 
much particularly familiar with these ways of working, but have had to adopt. That's, that's like on the job training. And having done that, having devoted the time to engage with new platforms, new ways of buying, new ways of selling, it's unlikely that businesses, households, workers are going to go back to the old ways of doing things. So those transitions have been accelerated, in my view, is they will be quite persistent. Um, I want to get on to gross domestic product. I mean, it is GDP is something that we hear a lot. It, it is a, a major measure of economic success, it seems. Do you think this sort of endless expansion of gross domestic product is really um, appropriate anymore? Also, can you can you explain why it's been used as a measure as well so far? So I would liken gross domestic product to a famous quote about democracy. It's not perfect, but it's better than all the other all the other alternatives. I'm slightly <laughs> uh, bastardising the quote, but you get the idea. Um, the GDP, gross domestic product, is a measure of how much a given economy will produce normally in a year or a quarter, depending on your measure. Um, is it perfect? Does it capture some of the caring responsibilities, some of the work of the chari- in the charitable sector, some of the social, uh, what are known as externalities, things that don't have a price, but we know that there is value in, in the, the efforts that businesses and consumers and households make to do that. And um, yes, there are imperfections, but I still think it has a really valuable role because amidst all the doom and gloom, it has to be said that if you track back over many, many decades, the reduction in poverty at a global level and indeed at a national level, is heavily linked to an improvement in GDP. So as a country becomes more wealthy, it can afford it can afford to pull greater and greater proportion of its population out of both absolute and indeed, if it chooses, relative poverty. And those are the, one of the reasons why GDP must remain an important target. But as always, look at it in the round. There is also measures of uh, gross national happiness that also need to be taken account when deciding these big decisions on how to allocate resources, be you in government or in financial markets. Um, I want to move on to a, um, a potential trend that, that is emerging, and that's this idea of deglobalization. Um, so I think, you know, we've seen certainly some anti-globalist sentiment emerge um, in, in politics in, in recent years. And, and, and obviously there's tensions between the US and China in terms of trade. Um, and then the, the crisis has sort of reminded us that having someone halfway across the world supply you with things that you really need it's not it's not very useful either when when you're in the midst of a of a, of a lockdown and and that's a lot more difficult so do you think this is going to be a trend that sort of picks up so you're right to say that this trend was already in play before covid 19 came along the anybody who's followed uh, any economics or markets related news or indeed political news over the last few years will have noticed that the US and China, the two big economic superpowers, have been at loggerheads over terms of trade. And part of that is from a desire, particularly on the United States side, although arguably on, on both sides of that relationship, to be in control of their own economic destiny and not be reliant on another trading partner. Now, um, it's, let's be very clear what the economics says about all this, which is that it makes no sense for a single country uh, 
to make everything it needs um, because there are other countries that can do it cheaper, more effectively, and you can trade what you're good at in return for what they're good at and everybody is better off. That is one of the most powerful facets of economics. But you are right to say that the COVID-19 crisis has introduced what I would describe as um, strategic weaknesses in the supply chain. So, so in the case of the UK, in the early part of the year, there was a shortage of PPE, um, uh, protective equipment for uh, dealing with the pandemic for, for healthcare workers and the wider community, because we didn't source a lot of it in the United Kingdom. And of course, everyone in the world was seeking it at once. Similarly with the chemicals industry, reagents in order to do greater amounts of testing. These are the things which I think going forward, when we have the inevitable public inquiry in the UK, there will be recommendations that we insource some of what I would describe as strategically important industries, so that if ever we faced um, things that we really can't afford to do without or can't afford to do without without paying whatever price is demanded from the supplier, we will say that there is domestic capacity. And that will reverse some elements of globalization, but certainly not all the gains of the last 50, 60 years. I mean, do you think there are issues with globalization? Oh, undoubtedly. Um, I think there are problems of countries not necessarily playing by the same rule book. And that is one of the big challenges the US have laid down at the, at the World Trade Organization, both with China and with the European Union, that a combination of subsidies uh, and, um, and other anti-competitive practices means that you, you, globalization, which should uh, in, in theory, benefit everybody is a bit of a one-way street if you are uh, not playing by the same rules. My perhaps uh, naively optimistic uh, view on these things is let's fix the rules of the game, not throw the game in the tip. Can I, I mean, one of the, the fears is with all these stimulus measures is that we see inflation coming through in a big way and therefore you know, suddenly central banks would have to start raising interest rates in order to control that, uh, which means, you know, for anyone with any debt, like a mortgage, um, suddenly life could become a whole lot more expensive. Do you think that's a risk? Well, this is the $64,000 question. In fact, it's probably much more expensive than that. Um, it is the question that uh, professional investors ask me almost every meeting I have at the moment, which is, will inflation which has been very, very benign in both wages and prices. You might not always feel like that from some of your listeners, but it has been at a global level, very, very low inflation for some years now. Whether that's about to go in the opposite direction, we're going to see prices and wages start to pick up at much more than the sort of 2% targets that most uh, countries have. Um, I I'm sceptical as to whether we will see big changes in what have been quite subdued price pressures. Why? Well, if you think about the big wage price spirals of the 1970s and 1980s, this was when unionised workforces were a big part of the economy. So prices go up and collective bargaining unions would bid up the wages and then prices would have to go up and wage. And there was a spiral effect. We have a far less unionized workforce at the moment, and therefore their ability for that to happen is far more impaired. And that isn't going to reverse anytime soon. And then also we talked earlier in the podcast about the energy industry. Well, what we're seeing in terms of the cost of 
wind power, solar power, is this is coming down at rates far, far faster than most people anticipated just a few years ago. And that's a strong deflationary force in the economy. So the idea that in, uh, inflation and interest rates are going to pick up aggressively from here, I still remain very sceptical. Okay, do you see any other, you know, let's look into the crystal ball. What what other trends, you know, what are you thinking about in, in 2021 then? Yes, yeah, so um, as the economy, uh, and let's condition this on the fact that the economy will reopen um, as a result of a, a combination of a vaccine and better healthcare um, treatment for, for COVID-19. As that happens, the tide will go out for a lot of businesses and jobs. Will they still be viable uh, in 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 a in the new economy, if you like, and at the moment there's a bit of an artificial reality. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a furlough scheme or the amount of uh, bounce back loans or COVID business interruption loans that have been put into the economy. It sort of masks the reality of how much economic damage there may be. I think in 2021 we'll start to see the shape of that, and therefore, perhaps paradoxically, as things get better, those businesses and jobs that are in the wrong parts of the economy are going to reveal themselves and dealing with that the stuff we spoke about about 10-15 minutes ago on the podcast how easily the economy adjusts is going to be a huge theme for 2021 and I think will define the economic trajectory for the next few years. Yeah because it's this interesting thing where recessions can sort of end up being a somewhat healthy shakeout in that some of those less good businesses are, are you know fall to the wayside so is it is, is it this a, is it an unnatural thing to have huge volumes of quantitative easing carrying through some of these bad or less good businesses um when really maybe economically the right thing might be to let them fail um economically it might be the right thing to let them fail over the long run but short term it is neither compassionate nor sensible uh, economically to do so. Um, we are not, doesn't matter how eloquently uh, one speaks, none of us have the have perfect foresight. And a business that was economically viable uh, just eight, nine months ago, we do not know how economically viable it, it might be in 2021. So supporting it through that period, through low interest rates, uh, a high, uh, you know, um, accommodative debt markets, lots of loans, the job retention scheme is the economically smart thing to do. But you're right to say that that adjustment is a very healthy part of an economy and will have to take place at some point. But it shouldn't, and this is the big, big learning people should take from economics. It should never happen in a crisis. In a crisis, it is all about protecting your supply side and getting through to the other side when the economy is recovering, when the shakeout inevitably happens. Yes, because otherwise you could end up, that was the learnings really from the 30s, where you had that horrible Great Depression. And that's because, you know, it, no help was offered really at, at that period of time from 29. Correct. Okay. Interesting. Well, Simon French, thank you very much for joining me on the pod. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Marcus. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Simon French from Panmure Gordon for his time. Thank you for listening. 
all the previous versions of the pod are on the website at stepstoinvesting.com if you're not already there. And we look forward to welcoming you to next week's show. In the meantime, stay safe. Goodbye. Goodbye.